Um, we're entering back into what, what is often called the Upper Room Discourse. Now, that's a very descriptive title, but I think it's kind of bland. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of flavor, um, especially when you see what we're going to see in these five incredible chapters of the Scriptures. Uh, yes, Jesus is teaching, so it's a discourse, and it's in this upper chamber, this upper room, but, but it's much more than that. Um, what we see here in these chapters is the very heart of our Lord open up to us in a way like we don't see anywhere else in Scripture, really. And, and so we, some have called these chapters the Holy of Holies of the Scriptures. And so we're entering into that inner sanctuary of the Bible in some sense as we get to, again, see our, our, our Lord and His heart open for us and on display and we want to be changed by it. I've got a quote, and this will be on the screen. This is from Alexander McLaren, just to kind of set us up as we start into this journey through these five chapters of John. He says, Nowhere else do the blended lights of the Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such lambent brightness. Nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even of the Bible, have so many eyes glistening with tears looked and had their tears dry. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are His highest self-revelation and speech. That's setting us up for what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks in the Gospel of John. And we're just kind of dipping our toes into the water this morning in this opening, pun intended, uh, as, we, as we get into this first uh, opening verses of chapter 13. Since we've been out of, out of John for some time now, I think it's important for us to remember why John has written this book. And we don't have to guess. He's told us some very plain words. And he tell, tells us at the end of, end of the, uh, the, the, his gospel account, back in John chapter 20, look there with me, John 20, Verse 30 and 31. And so he's, he's left the key by the back door and he said, go ahead, look, and let me see what's inside. And so he, he, he tells us in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And he says elsewhere, you can, you can go read the other accounts if you want to know all the other facts about what Jesus did and other teachings. But he says, but these, verse 31, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So, we said this before, and many times, and, but it's been a while. So John has something that he wants us to see. He wants us to see Jesus. And so he's recorded for us these signs, these truth-infused miracles that make up kind of the backbone of this, of his gospel account. And, and it's through those signs, there's like billboards that are pointing to Christ and who he is and what he's like. And so, so he wants us to see Jesus. And then seeing him, as we see him through these signs, he wants us to believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God. That we will believe more deeply in Him. That we will, we will put our trust in Him, rest our confidence on Him alone, have faith in Him. So that's, that's getting what He had. But that, that leads to something else in the end is He wants us to see Jesus and so that we believe in Him and ultimately so that we have life in His name. Not just existing, that's not, not just living, but have 
As, as, as John talks about life, it's this eternal, this abundance of life. We want to know, we want to really live as we really lay hold of Christ, see Him, and believe in Him. And so we have this little graphic that, uh, that, that's been kind of giving us some definition and to see, to believe, to live. We've got the glasses, see, believe, live is in focus. That's the, that's what we really want to see through this study. One of our express purposes throughout our study of John, and this is how one of the many ways I've been praying for myself, praying for you, and praying for our flock as we've been working through this, is that we'll have a greater hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ. They will have an insatiable hunger and an unquenchable thirst to know Christ more. Um, that will feast upon the bread of life and be filled and satisfied with Christ. That will we'll, we'll answer the invitation of Christ when He says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And that there will be a river that swells up in us of, of living water that is Christ. And we'll, we'll own Him. That we'll be like the deer as the, as the deer pants for water brooks. That we'll long for Christ. He will become bigger and bigger in our estimation as we, as we walk through these pages. And so, as we get into John 13 and 17, let's just remember, this is right in line with that purpose. This is what John is wanting us to do. He wants us to see Christ, to believe Him more deeply, to know more of the life that He gives. And he records this, this scene in, in Jesus' life and His ministry in greater detail than any other Gospel writer. A fourth of the entire gospel account is, is, is focused on these few hours with Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. So we have tremendous detail here. And, and we find more direct quotations of Jesus in concentrated form than any other section in scripture. And so if you're reading, if you have a, a red letter edition of the Bible which puts the letters, the direct quotes of Jesus in red, you'll notice as you just flip through these pages, almost everything's in red. He's, he, Jesus is, is, is teaching in concentrated form in view of his imminent death. He's about to die, and so he's got his disciples there alone, together in this room, and, and within an hour of the very last word that Jesus speaks in John 17, just within an hour, Jesus will be arrested. So the need is urgent. The hour is urgent. And so this Holy of Holies of Scripture, it begins with this symbolic act, which is all we'll have time to look at today. It leads into this lengthy teaching section, and it ends with a, an incredible prayer in John 17. And again, this morning we're just simply looking at this symbolic, symbolic act of washing feet, which is how, how John, as John records it, it all begins in the upper room. And so the title of the message is The Beatitude of the Basin. Look down to verse 17, the last verse Walter read this morning. And this is where the title comes from. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you. That's, a, that's that word, you know, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you when people say all kinds of things falsely against you and so on. So you have those Beatitudes, we call them. Those, those blessed. Blessed means Glad, happy, joyful, uh, gratified. That's kind of the flavor of this word blessed. It's to, to know that inner happiness and satisfaction that, that comes from doing, doing exactly what you were made to do. 
And, and, and so it's knowing God's favor. And this is, if you want the blessed life that God intends for you, this is, this is how it's opened up to us. If you want inner joy, if you want God's favor, then you need to know and do what Jesus says here. That's what we'll see. And so we want to see, we want to see the servant this morning. We want to see Jesus. This is what we've, we're singing just a minute ago. Show us Christ. And we want to see him. His whole life was dominated by service. This is one of the ways he stated his mission. The Son of Man didn't, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there are three responses, and that's what our, how our time will be framed. We'll look at three responses to, to what it, to, as we see the servant in this, in this act this morning, and we'll look at each of them briefly. We've got a great morning this morning. You've got three sermons this morning. And so... Just be prepared for that. And there's this, this part of the sermon. We're going to meet at the table, and this is going to proclaim a message to us. And then we have baptism this morning, which is another message to us as a church. So we've got a, got a rich time together. We'll make it as far as we can in John. And then we want to, we want to eat and drink and rejoice in and, and the new life uh, together. So, so that's the plan for this morning. First thing, first response as we see the servant is we need to love the servant for his heart. Love the servant for his heart. And, and we're going to read through verses 1 to 4. And, and what, as we do, I want, you to, I want you to see what's going on in the heart of Christ here. His, John records for us his awareness of what's happening. So verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Just stop there. So John doesn't just tell us what happened. That's not where he begins. He doesn't just start. Well, this is the first thing that happened. He tells us what's going on in our Lord. This is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has this awareness as Christ talked to him about this. But just look at, look at what's recorded for us. This isn't just, a, just a incidental details before we get into the story. John wants us to see this. This is important. He wants us to see the heart of the servant. And so he, he says that Jesus knows that his hour has come. He is well aware that his death is imminent. He, he, he knows about Judas' betrayal. He knows all of this simultaneously while knowing exactly who He is, that He's Lord. Jesus is fully aware that He's God. And, and, and he's, he's fully conscious of His complete supremacy, of His imminent super-exaltation after the resurrection. He is fully aware of this, and yet He did not account, as Paul says, He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of servant. And so knowing all this and also knowing that he would be betrayed by one of the twelve and knowing that Peter would deny him and knowing that all the, the other eleven would flee for fear after he was arrested, knowing this, he says he loved them, loved them to the end. Loved them to the end. I think the end is the cross. I think that's what's in mind here. So, so as we see this, these opening words, we, we see Jesus has this, this different perspective on this scene than the twelve do. He sees things differently. Their, their thoughts are about food. 
about position, about rank, about about uh, greatness, about the temporal. Jesus is thinking thoughts about the cross, about atonement, about love, about eternity. And so this is my only point with these opening verses. Some would say that... And, and I, none of you, not a believer, wouldn't say this, but others might look at this as you, if you think of the world's standards of greatness, you would look at this scene and say, Jesus looks pathetic here. So what, what, he's, what is he doing? He's Lord. Why, is he, why would he do this? And, and I look at this scene, and my love for the Lord swells. And I hope yours does too. And I say, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. He knows all of these things. He knows he's going to die for these people who are going to abandon him. He knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows he 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 knows all these things. He's fully aware of all the glory and all the honor he deserves, and yet he loves them to the end. I, I love him for that. And so this is just the first simple response. I think we just need to love the Savior, love the servant for his heart that John through the. Spirit allows us to just see in these opening verses. So with that in mind, let's let's look on. Let's get to the actual scene and the story of what's happening here. Second, let the servant wash your heart. Let the servant wash your heart. And so here's the scene. It's Thursday evening. Sun is set. It's dinner time. Supper time. Whatever, however you say it. Wherever you're from. Uh... But it's, it's late, it's mealtime, and Jesus and his disciples, they've come from Bethany, which is about a mile, mile and a half away from Jerusalem proper. And they've come, and their feet are sweaty and dirty. They don't have shoes and socks, open-toed, you know, open sandals. And, and so they've, they've, they've walked into the city, and they're sitting down for the Passover meal with our Lord. And it was customary in a situation like this. You would have your feet washed. And so remember the, we talked about this before, but the table, don't think, this don't think Leonardo da Vinci, you know, last supper kind of table, this long banquet table, and they're sitting on chairs on one side of the table. That's not the picture. It was this kind of U-shaped low table where they would lean on their left elbow and, and eat as they, as their feet were push, pointed away from the table. That was the, kind of what the scene was. And so, so, Again, it's, it's all on the ground and dirty feet, and so the, not uncommon, and so it would be normal to wash feet. And that foot washing was a very menial task. This was something the servants, the slaves would do. Oftentimes the host would provide this for the guests. But in this situation, there is no, there is no servant. It's just Jesus and the twelve. Or is there a servant? <laughs> um, so they could wash their own feet, or better... One of the disciples could wash the feet of the others, but not a single one of them is willing. And from parallel accounts, we know what's going on in the minds of the disciples because an argument breaks out in the same context. And they're arguing about who among us is the greatest. This is what's consuming their thoughts as they show up for dinner that night. They're, they're concerned about rank. They're jockeying for position around the table. And, and, and so they're, they're, this is what's on their mind. Um, and then, so everything's ready, everything's in place for this foot-washing task. 
pictures there. I got a little visual display. I did not look like this. This was like a wedding. This is from our wedding, you know, registry. So that's what we got. And it wasn't exactly like this, but every, everything's there. And I just want you to, because John is describing us in great, for this in great detail. We'll, we'll see that in a moment, but everything's there. The picture's there. He talks about this. The wash basin's there. Towel's there. There's water in the picture, but nobody budges. Nobody moves an inch. I imagine them, this is my imagination here, just kind of keeping their heads down and not making eye contact and just kind of waiting for someone else to move and then faking it like they were going to move when, they, when the other person did so it looked like they went, oh, but you go ahead, you know, kind of a thing. That's, that's how I see this playing out. But Jesus waits a long time. Just the, the way the wording is, you put the parallels together, it seems the food's on the table, dinner's ready, Everyone's reclining at the table, but nobody moves. First one to move, totally unexpected. It's Jesus. Calmly gets up from the table, and he takes off his outer garments, the text says. Uh, so, is he, again, you, you put the scene from the cross, is they're, they're casting lots for Jesus, outer garments, same word, he's left there, Simply a loincloth, his underclothes, and and I think I think that's probably the case here. And that's not that's not to be funny or suggestive. That shows us the condescension of our Lord. He's again, taking the form of a servant, of a slave. And so, get this scene. <laughs> again, food's on the table. Everything's ready. Picture everything's there. Nobody moves. Jesus moves. The Son of God, the Creator of heaven and earth, on, on earth, the preeminent one, the one in whom all things hold together. There's not a molecule of their bodies that's not just imploding apart from His sovereign work of keeping them together at this moment. King of kings, Lord of lords, and He, and he, and he takes, the, takes the form of a servant. Takes a long linen cloth and wraps it around his waist so that the end is able, so he can, after he washes their feet with his bare hands, he can take that towel and dry their feet off. I mean, I think of Peter's words to the church later in 1 Peter 5.5. 5, he, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I think, to see have this image burned in his mind as he says those, writes those words. So verse 5. Text says, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And interestingly, John writes this and he uses most often in here present, the present tense form of the verb to describe this scene. It's translated past tense in our English uh, modern translations, but that's fine. But it literally would be Jesus rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments. He pours water into a basin. He comes to Simon Peter. And I think the point of that is John, again, he wants us to be imported into this scene. And this is why he spares no words. He gives so much detail. Every little detail is recorded for us in, 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 in a very graphic way. Every little step in the process. You, John desperately wants us to see this. To see Jesus. To really see him. 
To linger on this moment until we grasp what it's communicating. To, to have all of our senses engaged so that we can, can begin to consider and contemplate our Lord's condescension. So he gives all these details about what's happening and what's next. And so Jesus pours water from the pitcher into the basin. And he places the basin on the floor behind the first disciple that he comes to feet again pointing away and with that water he the lord proceeds to wash that disciples dirty feet with his hands and dries them with the end of the towel and he moves to the next one and we don't know which disciple he started with i mean I, I, these are how mine my mind runs and we don't know how long it was before he got to peter we don't know when judas's feet were washed there's a lot of details we don't know but but along the process, he's washing the disciples' feet and drying them off. And in that process, he's interrupted in verse 6. Verse 6, look at with me. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the contrast is, is between those pronouns is emphatic here. It's literally something like, Lord, do you my feet wash? He's He's... He can't get his mind around what's happening here. The other disciples seem to kind of keep their thoughts to themselves. And you wonder what's going through their mind. You can, you can be assured it was, there was some confusion. There was probably some shame. This just shouldn't be happening. It's not, it doesn't seem right. But they're at a loss of what to say. Peter is never at a loss of what to say, is he? He, he seems to lack the ability to keep his thoughts to himself. And we're endeared to him and because of that. But he, he does his thinking out loud. And I, I, just a couple quotes. I just thought these were humorous. But from different commentators I read. One said of Peter, sometimes the only time he opened his mouth was to change feet. Um, another said, you know he's going to put his foot in his mouth. But the thing you can never figure out is how he's going to get the other one in there with it. Uh, And so that's Peter. But we can't bash him too much, though, um, because he does. He sees the incongruity of what's happening here. He gets it. He believes that Jesus is the Lord of glory. And and he should not be washing their dirty feet. This is unacceptable in Peter's mind. But he, but Peter can't see the bigger picture. He sees the little moment. He sees, he sees this scene. He sees the picture. He sees the bowl. He sees the towel. He sees the Lord on the floor in that moment. He sees the physicality of what's going on. But he, he can't really see what's going on. And yet Jesus does. He sees the whole picture. And so he says to Peter, verse 7, Jesus answered him. And again, these pronouns are emphatic. Jesus is going to contrast his own I, you here. Says Jesus answering, What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards you will understand. Now it's in the ESV, I didn't consult other English translations, it's not as it's not obvious, but there are two different words there for understand or know. The first word is just simple knowing. I I you know, you, you know facts for a test, you mental process of, of knowing. The second word is is more experiential knowledge, apprehension, really grasping. So Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't understand, you don't know what's going on, you're trying to make sense of this scene, and it doesn't make sense up here in your, in your head, but afterward, you will really get it. You will experientially grasp 
and understand what I'm, what this all means. And I think afterward isn't after the foot washing like, boom, the lights came on for Peter, but after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, and I would say after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, you'll get it, Peter. You'll understand what my humiliation, the whole of it, is all about. And so, all right, Peter, we want to say to him, and just drop it. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> Please, just, just stop talking. But he doesn't, and we know he's not going to. He's well aware of the incongruity of the situation in which we commend him for, but he seems to be oblivious to the incongruity of a disciple telling his Lord what he should and should not do. And so Peter blurts out, verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. That's a strong, strongly worded statement. Double negative here in the, in the Greek. No, never, not for all eternity will you wash my feet. That's what he's saying. And we can imagine Peter kind of recoiling his feet from that wash basin as he pulls them back in protest of the Lord. So how does Jesus answer that? Give me your feet, angrily. No, no. He could have simply said, Peter, let me wash your feet. My my whole object lesson is not going to work if you don't let me have your feet. Just bear with me. Just trust me. Cooperate. That's not what he says. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And here we begin to see this... This two-pronged message that Jesus has for His disciples kind of come to light. There's more than, obviously, we know, there's more than foot washing, more than physical cleaning of feet. And He's beginning to teach them about servanthood, yes, and He's going to say at the end, I've left you an example, do this. But there's more even than that. He's teaching them about spiritual washing. He's, He's teaching them how love makes it possible for sinners to have a relationship with the Holy God and what needs, what's required for that to happen. And so Jesus is saying, unless, unless by my work of humiliation, foot washing is just an, an illustration of the, the bigger washing work that Jesus has done in His condescension, unless that happens, unless you're washed from your sins, you can have no share in the fruits of my redemptive work. And again, Peter, Peter can't understand this at this point. The message is lost on him in the moment, but he will later get it. He will later understand. So Peter, Peter doesn't want to miss out on that. And so he asked Jesus, okay, not just my feet, but give me a bath. I want, I want it all then. Again, he's missing the meaning. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So he goes from one extreme to another, which is exactly what Peter does throughout most of his life. And... and and so, you, you know, he goes from, from confessing that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in one moment, and then rebuking the same Lord just a few moments later. He's walking on water one moment, crying out and sinking and crying out for help in the next, like a kid carrying a big old full five-gallon bucket of water, you know, running and water sloshing out one side, then the other. I mean, that's kind of that's how Peter goes. So verse 10 Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, 
but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So he's describing two different kinds of washing, of cleansing here. There's, and we, just physically, a bath is different from a foot washing. We, we, get the, we get that picture. What is he talking about here? But he's saying, you are clean. You don't, the whole body washing, that's the radical cleansing of the new birth. It's, this, it's the bath of conversion. And so 11 of them, Jesus says, 11 of you have taken that bath. 11 of you are clean. One of you is not. Judas is not. 11 are born again. They've believed on Jesus. They have eternal life. They've passed from death to life. They're sons of light. They're children of God. They're, 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 they're His sheep and no one can pluck them out of His hand. They, they will not and cannot be lost. That includes Peter. Peter who will deny Jesus just a matter of hours. But Jesus says, Peter, you're completely clean. Completely clean. He's saved. To borrow, Paul, to borrow Paul's expression, he's justified. And, and I, let me just say to you, have you been washed by the Lord? Are you, are, have you been cleansed of your sins? Do you know that gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life that, that Jesus says 11 of the 12 knew. Do you, do you know that? The, the, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's stated most simply, and we've heard it so many times in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Have you, have you received that gift of, of, of salvation, of life in His name? For God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Verse 17. So this is God, God, God's desire. His, His desire for you is for you to, to be washed, to be completely clean in that sense. To have the bath of His forgiveness, to take a bath in His forgiveness and be cleansed from your sin. Has that happened to you? It can right now. You can trust Him right now. You can just, you can cry out to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need, I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. I've, I, may have, I may have grown up in the church. I may have been around the church my whole life, but I've never put my trust in you. And you can do that right now. And you can, can know this before the service is over in a moment. And so I encourage you, beg you to do that if you've not trusted in Him. And then talk to one of us. But, but, but listen, what, what Jesus is saying, that happens one time. Conversion is, is once. You, you don't have to be saved over and over again every time you sin. But, but so Jesus is saying, it's not necessary to take a bath, Peter. You're clean. Just wash your feet. And so, so Peter needed a different kind of washing. He needed a recurrent kind of cleansing. And it's that, that washing of confession. I think that's what... That's the connection Jesus is making. You, need to, you do need to wash your feet, Peter. What does that symbolize? It's the fact that even people who are fully bathed, they, we walk in a world that is infected with sin and rebellion and disobedience and all kinds of evil around us. And, our, and, our, and as we walk, our feet get dirty. We sin. Even after we've been washed and cleansed by the Lord and we have His righteousness and we've been, we've been cleaned by the Lord, we, we still sin. There's no such thing as a sin-free life. And I hope that there's nobody that's going to challenge me on that point. 
I welcome it afterwards. It, I, I hope that doesn't shock you to hear that. We, we still struggle. We still fall. We still sin. And so what happens then when the believer sins? 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the repeated washing of our feet represents that daily confession of sin, turning to Jesus for that ongoing application of what He's accomplished at the cross, our cleansing, our forgiveness. And so either, even though Peter's completely clean, he's justified, there are sins that need daily confession and forgiveness, daily spiritual foot washings. And so, so do we. It's not unique to Peter. We, we need... We need as a habit of life to confess our sins to God. This is part, we need the recurrent washing that God gives to us through Jesus Christ. As we confess our sins, He forgives us. Tell Him we've been dis, where we've been disobedient, where we've been unloving. Tell Him where we've gone wrong. And He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to wash us from all unrighteousness. That's, so there's one bath of conversion. There are many foot washings of confession. Do you need your feet washed? Um, do you, do you, are there are sins that you need, to, you, you need to confess to God. You've been holding on. You're a believer. You've taken a bath. You you've, you've have experienced the, the washing of conversion. But, but you're, you, you're, maybe there's some, some habit in your life. Walking in a pattern of disobedience. And you need to confess it to God. Maybe even this morning. There's anger, there was impatience, there's something even on the ride to the church this morning. We're going to take the table in a moment, and this is not a table that's reserved for perfect people, but it's for sinners who come with contrite hearts, reveling in the mercy of God that forgives our sins when we confess them. And so I invite you, I beg you to, to talk to God, even now, as I'm preaching, and confess your sin to God. Have your feet washed by our Lord, and know that forgiveness. Or do you need a bath? You need a bath. You're trying to kind of keep your feet washed. You know, I mean, you think Judas is in the room with those disciples. He's getting his feet physically washed. And maybe, maybe that's kind of how you're viewing going to church. If I just kind of wash the dust off my feet and, and you're thinking it's about, it's about going to church, it's about doing good things and keeping morality and kind of, kind of keeping the scales balanced, but you've, you, you have no awareness that you need a bath. You, you are sinful through and through. You don't just need a little polishing of your feet. You need, you need to be washed. And if that's true for you, again, you can do that even now. Trust in Him. Last point, and I'm just going to be able to state it, and then we're going to come to the table, is learn to imitate the servant from your heart. Learn to imitate the servant from your heart. Verse 12, And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Short answer to that, no. They didn't get it yet. But they, they will. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You, that's, it's right in line with what I've already said of myself. I and the Father are one. You say that. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. If I... The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth 
And that belongs to me. If I have washed your feet and, and that that gap is so enormous, then what is this that you horizontally wash one another's feet? And, and, and it goes on, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And listen, that, that wash and that do, they're present tense verbs. And all that means is continuous action, habit of life. Jesus is not instituting a new, uh, a new ordinance here where whenever the church gathers or every once in a while you need to have a foot washing ceremony. No, he's saying constantly. This is the pattern of your life. Do this. Wash one another's feet. That's, that's what he's saying. And, and so this is, this is who you are. This is what characterizes your life. And this is the great news. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's not an imperative. He's not commanding. You better do this. No, he's holding out this promise. He's making this declaration. You want to know what a blessed life is like? You want to know what a life that enjoys the radiant smile of God on your life and you know His favor and you, you have this satisfaction and this delight of being in favor with God and knowing that closeness with Him and, and, and doing what God, living how God intends you to live. You want to know that and we do, brothers and sisters. If you're in Christ, you want that. He says you do this. You know, know it. Not knowing is not enough. You do it. Live like a servant. It's not being able to give a lecture on the difference between biblical servant leadership and the world's definition of leadership. That's not it. No, you need to be able to just do it. Serve. Put the towel around your waist. Get on your knees. Serve. He doesn't say this, but the opposite, we need to be mindful of, and it's in the context. The other option is clamoring for greatness. and Position. Wanting to see how others can serve you. It's complaining. It's criticizing. That is not, it's not a blessed life. That's a miserable way to live. I know it feels like we're, we're doing what we can so we can be happy, but you end up just miserable. If, that's what, if you're waiting on everybody else to serve you and for the, for the church to kind of meet your needs and to everybody to kind of gather around you and and, and what you feel like you need most, waiting for other people to do that, that's, that's, just a, that's, a, that's going to be a, a, a miserable way to live. But Jesus says, you want to know a blessed life? Serve. And if that's hard for you, consider Jesus. Look at our Lord. He's, look at this scene. And this is why John, again, spells it out in such detail. He wants his image burned in our brains. He wants us to see our Lord getting up from the table when nobody else would. Taking his clothes off, putting that towel around his waist, stooping down with his bare hands, washing the dirt and the grime and the stench off of their feet, drying them as as he knows what's coming. He knows he's about to die for these people who are going to run away and deny him. He loves them to the end. Let that image stir us. There are... I have many applications here that we won't even have time to get to. Maybe I'll pull some of these in next week. There are thousands and thousands of ways that we can can put on the towel and serve one another in this church. But I, I don't think the point is to list all of those and give you ideas. I, I would say there are there there. Some of you do this and you, you exemplify this and may you excel still more in this. But the rest of us, like me, I, I need to be more mindful of those opportunities, looking Ways to serve. Let's pray.
Lord, would you, um, even as we come to the table, God, as we taste, as more senses are engaged in remembering, remembering our Lord and what he did and his humiliation and his incarnation and his condescension and coming, holy God, coming to earth, dying for our sins, broken body, shed blood, uh, to, to make us right with you, to bring us into relationship, sinners that we are with the holy God. God, I pray that, that you, would, you would humble us even as we come to the table. We, we would find the blessedness and the joy and the gladness that comes by being humbled and serving.